Welcome to part one of the beginning of KNON, an interview with Wade Rathke. In our first part of this three-part podcast, KNON station manager Dave Chaos talks to Wade Rathke about who is Wade Rathke, his history, his work, and why he does it. Learn about the person who started KNON here in part one. This is Dave Chaos with KNON, and I'm here with Wade Rathke, who was there at the start of KNON and is a worldwide community organizer, founder of ACORN, Acorn International, founder of community radio stations. In this podcast, you will hear the KNON Root story. Let's start out talking about you, Wade Rathke, and your history. Where are you from? Born in Laramie, Wyoming. Lived in Colorado for some years, and then Kentucky, and then ended up in New Orleans when I was in elementary school. Graduated from high school uh, here in New Orleans, and, you know, it was too flat and too hot, and I was out of here. Ended up in Arkansas, and then 78, back here in New Orleans. So what can you say? <laughs> what did you do before getting involved with community organizing? The, uh, David, you know that uh, I actually started ACORN when I was 21 years old. So uh, that's a pretty short time beforehand. I mean, I uh, briefly went to college uh, uh, in Massachusetts, a place called Williams College. I dropped out to uh, organize against the war. Which war, you might say, the Vietnam War, that ages me. And before that, I'd been, you know, I graduated from high school. I worked uh, one summer as a roustabout in Oklahoma oil fields. And one summer I worked offshore in the Gulf of Mexico as a contract worker under a Chevron rig. So my dad had moved around. He was an, uh, an accountant with an oil company, with Chevron. So you, we followed the oil, essentially here. That's in New Orleans. They know that's a Texas story. You can follow that in Dallas. Uh, um, and so, yeah, we ended up in New Orleans. Uh, we were Western kids, uh, but so we always thought this was temporary, and it wasn't temporary. And then I started, uh, I dropped out of school a second time, and that time not to organize against the war, but to organize with welfare rights. What was your first personal experience with injustice? Gee, that's an interesting question. I mean, uh, the... My grandparents uh, on one side lived in California. My dad was from Orange County, and on the other side were from Sunflower County, Mississippi. And so once we moved back to New Orleans in elementary school, uh, every Thanksgiving we'd go up to my grandmother's house, which is in Drew, Mississippi. Uh, Senator Stennis was a U.S. senator from Sunflower County at that time. Fannie Lou Hamer was from Ruleville, which was about you know, 10, 10 miles down the road one way, and Parchman Prison was, you know, another 10 miles the other way. Famous uh, Parchman Farm. Yeah, exactly. Um, my great aunt was the postmistress, uh, and my brother and I several times drove with her to Parchman uh, to deliver mail, and it was one of the more frightening trips we'd ever taken, not because of Parchman Prison, because she drove these three-hole Buicks with one wheel and uh often the shoulder in the dirt and the other on the highway. So you always wondered, would you ever get there? So we were probably the only people ever to be relieved to get to Parchment Prison because uh, we were always convinced, why did we do this? Why did we go with Aunt Sue again? We knew better. Um, now, of course, you can't really just show up and wave through the postmistress and, uh, you know, a couple of kids in the back. But the bottom line, back to your question, is that it was once we moved back to New Orleans— there was a civil rights movement in New Orleans. There was, you know, 
reality there that we were seeing in Sunflower County, which was the heart, the cotton was king then. Um, the discussions in the little main street uh, about race were just things you couldn't avoid. So you had to, if it didn't seem right, and you could keep your eyes open. I mean, we were, I can remember one time getting on a streetcar here after we'd first moved here, and you, you know, it cost seven cents, and we didn't know anything, so you sat where you sat, and we went to the back. We thought that was more interesting, and it was quite a ruckus because we were past the, the little poster saying, you know, white's only one way, and colored only the other. So because we'd moved around so much uh, as children, um, we weren't really from anywhere. Uh, so uh, we were always outsiders, and you sort of look at things differently as an outsider. My mother was from Sunflower County, and obviously she navigated that in interesting ways. My dad uh, had left Orange County, uh, the Navy, during the war, and the Navy sent him to school because he passed... Uh, they were giving a B-2 test on uh, naval bases then, and uh, they then they were losing so many officers, they sent him to Millsaps College in Jackson, Mississippi, and that's where he met my mother. And then, you know, changed world. He was from California, so he walked across the street after he got out of, out of the military and to the California company, is what Chevron was called. And On the way. Thing, yeah, first on thing the they way. did was send him to Wyoming, which is where, you know, in Colorado, where I was born. Why do you care so much about what is happening to other people? The, uh, oh, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I think the, the question for me, Dave, has always been how do, you, how do you not care so much? I mean, if you listen to people, if you keep your eyes open, and uh, this is certainly what I've always done, it's hard to escape the double standards, the injustice, the inequity that's all around us. And I just uh, was deeply affected by the notion uh, as I was coming through and the 60s were a time of turmoil that you were either part of the problem or part of the solution. There seemed to be, I'm not sure that uh, I ever believed we were close to a revolution, but there was revolution in the air and uh, you either did something and you grabbed the ring and jumped or you stayed where you were and I always... Uh, thought that uh, you had to act now and was in a hurry and impatient. And I got in trouble in high school here in New Orleans. Uh, all the guidance counselors gave me quite a hard time on their you know, reviews before I was going to go to college because they thought I had a Manichaean sense of justice. So you have to go back and look that up. What is, what is a Manichaean sense of justice? Well, it's a very, Manichaeus was a, uh, a judge in Hades who decided what your punishment was in Greek mythology. And it's a very clear black and white, right and wrong. And I got in some serious trouble a number of times in, when I was in high school here in New Orleans because I had a very clear sense of black and white. I mean, I, I, you know. No, no negotiating that. I was sent home once because a civics teacher, you know, asked me what I thought of a, something she just said about, I can't remember, politics or race or whatever. And I said it was the most asinine thing I'd ever heard. Oh, can't say that. It turned out there's three days off. Um, my class uh, at Franklin, uh, I went to a school that you tested into, um, uh, sort of whatever they would call a magnet school now, but it was, uh, you know, sort of more of a, it was a public school, but, and it's now not far from here, but then it was uptown. 
And so you had to have a certain IQ and a certain, you know, achievement test and all these kinds of things. And so once uh, Brown v. Board of Education was settled, there was no way you could say on separate but equal that there was a, an equivalent facility for African Americans in New Orleans. So even as they were integrating France School here at the elementary school, racially, Franklin had to, was the first high school, even as they were going grade by grade, that had to be integrated. So my class that entered in 65, class of 66, had 12, 13 African Americans in a small class and was the first public high school class above the second or third grade to be integrated here. So once again, you have to decide which which side you're on. What are you going to do? I mean, so that was integrated here as in New Orleans? In New Orleans, okay. right. I'm sorry. Why should others care? Because it's part of what makes society is how people work together and how we live together. So the notion that you can be part of the 0.1% and you know think that there's a, sort of a a Darwinian law of the survival and the rest of us can all, you know, starve and die just as wrong. I mean, the fabric of society is based on whether or not we are able to find common cause and look after each other in a positive and constructive way. That's how we want to live. And some of us have some skills we have to use to try to make that true. Who inspired you to get involved? It was really the times, Dave. Once again, civil rights movement was happening. The war on Vietnam, uh, you know, once I went to school in Massachusetts, I mean, uh, the debates about the war were even more pointed than they were in New Orleans. And so I went to the spring mobilization. I heard at uh, UN uh, in 67, I heard Martin Luther King speak uh, there. I became, you know, very committed to doing what I could to get the war to end. The first time I dropped out of school was to organize draft resistance in a draft counseling center. At that point, the war was very popular in the South, uh, but I'd worked on the offshore as a roustabout the previous summer. And there you had people, because uh, we were contract workers, so we worked 14-7, 12 hours a day, um, $2 an hour. <laughs> but... Uh, Maybe it was once, yeah, $2 an hour. But the way they split the work was, you know, the first week you have like 34 hours and then you have like 88 or so, so you make a lot of overtime. And then you have 48 hours in the last piece of it, so you make eight hours of overtime. So, Tough you know, that was big money. That was big money. And uh, one of the hardest decisions, I don't want to get off the subject, one of the hardest decisions I ever made, I had to make was I was offered a job at the end of that summer going to... Alaska, Prudhoe Bay is a roustabout, and you know the deal was you had to be willing to stay out there 90 days, and you would have made 20 grand. Well, at the point at that time, 20 grand would have paid my entire college education for four years if I'd really been committed to a college education. But the notion of being out there uh, freezing your ass uh, above water somewhere in Prudhoe Bay, but my point was. On the, among the people who were working either for the company, because it was a good job, they were all working 7-7. So they were coming from Oklahoma, from Texas, from driving from Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, the whole sort of southern area. And, you know, once they would be BSing around in the evening before, you know, they, I mean, you worked, they worked different shifts, but it was all pretty, once you're out there, you're working 12 hours a day. It was fairly clear, to my surprise, how opposed to the war all these men were. 
So when they would ask me, I'd say, you know, no, I, I don't have anything to do with Vietnam. I, you know, I'm not for it. And they would say, you know, yeah, that's what I've told my son. You know, we can't, that's, we don't have any business being. And so, you know, I felt that um, working people actually, no matter what the polls were saying, were not gung-ho uh, for Vietnam, even though the numbers were saying, you know, 75% of the South or whatever was for it. So like a fool, I, you know, left, I dropped out of school to then come down here because I thought, well, this is a place where I can do something. And I was lucky. I played high school football, ran track, whatever. And fifth game of my senior year, I had my ligament and cartilage, and I got clipped. So it was a Joan Namath knee which uh, I refused to get operated on. And so until I was 26, I carried around this moth-eaten letter from Ochsner Hospital here in New Orleans saying, you have to have an operation immediately. And you just can't make me have an operation. So it would come to, I went through four draft physicals, and I was 1A until I was 26. And uh, I would have my letter, and they would come to the time where you do deep knee bends, and I just would stand up straight as a rod and say, you know, hmm. not me. And, you know, they didn't want anybody who wanted But in the, in the draft physicals, it was all, you know, the majority, you know, I had one in Springfield, a couple of them here in New Orleans, one in Little Rock. You know, it was majority African-American. It was, you know, working, lower-income whites. I mean, it was people who didn't have a choice. And I just felt like there was something I could do about that. When did you start community organizing? Okay, so I went back to school after uh, that time I organized against the war. So I went back. I was up in Williams again in 68 and then dropped out again. Uh, Saul Alinsky spoke it. Uh, well, no, that was after that. So I needed, I'd gotten married when I, five days after I was 20 years old to uh, a woman I knew down here and went back to school. She was working as a secretary at the bank in Williamstown, Mass. And I needed a job that summer. And I, I wasn't going to work in the oil fields because I was still in Massachusetts. And so I, I got a job at, as a uh, summer vista in North Adams, which was, you know, down the road 20 miles or so from Williamstown. It's up in the northwestern part of the state in the Berkshires. And a month or so of doing that, uh, we went to a anniversary rally for welfare rights in the Boston Commons. And George Wiley, who was the executive director of welfare rights, was speaking. And we all went in a bus with some welfare recipients. And a guy came up to me and said he'd heard I'd done some organizing. And would I be interested in working for welfare rights? And I said, they needed somebody to go to Springfield, Mass., which was, you know, a couple hours down the road. And, uh, you know, I said I'd think about it. Uh, I had to see if it was ready. Uh, now, who knows how I would have known if some place was ready to be organized or not. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, but a week or two later, uh, I, you know, hitchhiked down there. I, my truck was broken. And... Uh, it was uh, one of those sort of crossroads. There was actually a story in the Los Angeles Times about this because there was a crew of people around then who were getting a bus together to go to this little affair. And uh, my ex-wife had, you know, signed us up to go. We were all set to go um, on a school bus to this Woodstock thing. Um, and uh, I talked to these people with welfare rights and said I would go check out Springfield, Mass. I'd never been there to see if it was ready to be organized. And 
Uh, so I, you know, I reneged. I said, well, you know, I just, I promised I was going to go down to Springfield. So, so you didn't get down the bus to Woodstock? That was, you know, that was uh, this Los Angeles. So the bus went that way and the youth <laughs> culture. And I went, you know, I hitchhiked down to Springfield the weekend. So but, you immediately sacrificed for organizing. Well, I didn't even know it was a sacrifice at the time, but it turned out to be a pretty big little thing happened there at Woodstock. <laughs> uh, that sort of defined a lot of, uh, you know, my particular generation. But uh, I, I, I took a different turn, uh, stayed on, in my sleeping bag on this guy's porch, uh, who was, uh, I can't remember his name right this second, but he was running a little underground newspaper in Springfield, Mass. And I walked the neighborhoods and met, you know, this or that person and I got, you know, hitchhiked back Monday or Tuesday to Williamstown and um, called and left a message at the Boston office on 17 Brookline Avenue in Cambridge that, uh, you know, seemed ready. I was ready to go. I'd see about doing that. Hmm. So they, they didn't commit to paying me. They didn't, you know, it was, you know, you had to be. 19 or whatever I was and you know uh, to be willing to do that oh you know at at that at 1920 Dave you'd know everything it's only when you get to be you know something like my age now or you know you find out how little you did know but uh, I certainly jumped right into the stew tell us about the founding of acorn in your role I work for welfare rights it's had organized you know after Springfield that uh, winter, uh, the organizer who had originally hired me, Bill Passerites, was moving towards Connecticut. There were staff problems. There was a set and the other. I'd had some success in Springfield that summer and had dropped out of school again to stay. I loved working for welfare rights. I loved working for the ladies. Um, we were having great success, uh, you know, signing up hundreds of people, big actions, winning big victories. So this was finally, you know, my politics was aligning to something. It turned out I had a little bit of talent in this area. Um, so I dropped out again and promised them I would be back, you know, in a year or something. And or they, I had, you're not supposed to, at that time, if you dropped out twice, you weren't supposed to ever be able to enroll. So they were going to give me credit if I wrote up, you know, my experience and this, that, and the other. So. I agreed, uh, it's a long story, but I agreed uh, to go to, at the end of that, that year, uh, 67, I agreed to, uh, I guess it would have been the end of 60, 69, I agreed to go to Boston to be the head organizer of Mass Welfare Rights. Well, Mass Welfare Rights had about 20, 25 organizers. Almost all of them were older than I was. Um, I was uh, you know, 21 at that time. But it was the largest affiliate of the National Welfare Rights Organization. We had about four or 5,000 members. Uh, we were winning a lot, but, you know, the tactics had to do with, you know, sitting in, you get arrested, you push, whatever. And I'd seen what happened in Springfield. We put together a very powerful organization, but we weren't able to win some campaigns. Uh, uh, same thing in Boston. Uh, the, we'd been so successful organizing welfare recipients around special needs, school clothing, spring clothing, you know, um, various kinds of furniture demands that we could get them to give us checks or vouchers for, that the governor at that time, Francis Sargent, implemented something called a flat grant. Well, what it meant is that 
They took the level at which they were paying welfare recipients and benefits and raised it up considerably to get rid of the special needs. So um, you were, you, in most cases, you would call that a huge victory. But what it did was remove our organizing tools. And at the same time, organizing welfare recipients, uh, largely women on welfare, AFDC at that time, aid to families with dependent children, was very unpopular. The, you know, people, it was the welfare Cadillac times. It was, uh, you know, people hated welfare recipients, even though they had basic rights and were just asking that the rights that they were entitled to be lived up to. We just, but because even in Boston at that time, where one out of seven people were on welfare, winning as a minority constituency just didn't seem to be working. So... George Wiley, uh, who I, Dr. Wiley I had tremendous respect for, who you know had started welfare rights with others and was the executive director, um, was speaking that winter at Harvard to something, and uh, I looked by there were a bunch of the organizers, and I'd gone to hear him, and uh, he was in the back talking to my ex-wife, and you know I asked her later, you know what, what was George talking? Oh, well, he was asking me if I wouldn't, you know, prefer to be in the South again. Uh, you know, was I really comfortable living in Boston? It was so cold and whatever. And so I, <laughs> I reached out to George and said, what's up here? Well, you know, he had the Southern strategy that they wanted to do because to move welfare payments up, you had to move Wilbur Mills, who was the congressman head of the Ways and Means Committee in the 2nd District in Arkansas, or you had to move Senator Russell Long in Louisiana, who was head of the Senate Finance Committee. He'd raised some money for the Southern strategy, but he didn't really have a way to put it together. And he knew that I'd lived in the South and had no particular problems with the South. Uh, so what he was really angling about with Lee was whether or not I'd be willing to go somewhere in the South. So I said, look, here's the deal. Um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you think I could do better work there, if you need me to do it, I'm glad to do it. But the way I see our development in welfare rights, we have to bring in more low and moderate income people across a broader constituency. And I have this notion of how you could build that on some of the same issues. So if you let me build this thing, uh, I'll go to the South. And so I visited Atlanta, talked to them. Um, I visited Little Rock, which is uh, was one of the places they were interested in because of Wilbur Mills. Um, and I came back and I said, look, if, if you let me build this thing, ACORN, as an affiliate of welfare rights, I'll, I'll move to the South. So George was desperate and said, sure, you know, that sounds good. Why not? We'll try that. And you organize welfare recipients and other low-income families into the same organization. I'm for that. The head of welfare rights was a woman named Johnny Tillman, who was from Watts in Los Angeles. And the vice president was a woman named Beulah Sanders, who was from Brooklyn. And they were part of the elected leadership of NWRO, National Welfare Rights Organization, which was run by something called the National Coordinating Council Committee or whatever, NCC. And there were two people from each state, like a little Senate. Well, so I moved to, you know, since Johnny was actually from Pulaski County, a little community, almost all black, called College Station, um, there were only 98 members of Welfare Rights. Dues was $1 a year. 
the notion that I would actually move from Massachusetts, the largest affiliate, down to Pulaski County and organize something in our home state. She was all for that. And she didn't really pay attention to this acorn thing I was talking about. Well, you know, we started out with a bang, you know, in June. I got down there June 18th uh, of 1970. Uh, like I said, 21 years old, you know. And we sort of built the first groups of welfare rights in acorn and, you know, in housing projects as well as outside of the housing projects. And uh, as it turned out, the national leadership of welfare rights got upset about it because they really more saw, they were afraid the, their vision of the organization was more like a craft union of welfare recipients than an industrial union of all low and moderate income people, if you look at it that way. So as ACORN grew so rapidly uh, in the first six or eight months of, of being in Arkansas, they were clearly uncomfortable, and so there was a vote of all of our groups to disaffiliate with NWRO at that time and go forward as, as ACORN, and every group but one uh, up in uh, Granite, Granite Heights, uh, one of the housing projects right outside of the city, voted to stay with ACORN, and so separate path there. What's ACORN stand for? Association of Community Organizations for Reform Now. Why did you pick the name? One of the things I learned working for welfare rights is that uh, nobody, of, even of our leadership, nobody could ever get the name right. It was a national this. It was, uh, you know, welfare whatever. I mean, it was, <laughs> it, was uh, it got so confusing uh, because, so I thought, an acronym made more sense as an organizational name. But one of the things I did learn from welfare rights is you needed a symbol which, united, which represented the organization. It was easy for people to draw, put on signs or whatever that identified the organization. And the one for welfare rights was sort of the link in a chain or, you know, like a rope uh, almost. And so, I, you know, originally I was in Arkansas, not nationally, so it was going to be Arkansas something. So I, you know, the flying back from Little Rock to Boston, uh, I started fiddling with what, you know, names of an organization I could come up with that started with an A. And so, you know, you go this and Acorn Community, and it doesn't take long, really, before you get to Acorn, and people can draw an Acorn. And um, so I, before I even knew exactly what we were going to be able to do, I was pretty clear that that would be a good name for the organization, and that turned out to be true. What is ACORN's mission? We organize low and moderate income families to build sufficient power in their communities, in their cities, counties, countries, to be able to address the issues they have uh, in a collective fashion with direct action to be able to make change that suits their interest. What is ACORN doing now? Well. We're in our 50th year, uh, and over the last number of years, the international organization is where I've spent the time. We organize in more than 15 countries. Uh, the largest affiliate is in Canada, where we have about 125,000 members, and the second largest is in India, where we have about 70,000. And then uh, the fastest growing organizations are actually in the United Kingdom now. Uh, 
and in France. Um, so the international organization originally focused on organizing in mega slums. Uh, and, you know, the first project was in Lima, Peru, outside of there, uh, San Juan Laragancho, and then Dorabi and Mumbai and uh, Korogochu and Nairobi, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, so there we support projects. We have to, even though they're dues-based, it doesn't pay enough. So we give people small stipends uh, to support the organization still. In, in places like Canada or UK or Europe, they're, they're part of the organization. We provide training, assistance, and everybody we can. I talk to them every couple of weeks, uh, or in case in France, every week. But there we don't make any financial contribution. They raise their own money and get as big as they're able to raise money to, to get between dues and whatever. You are a lifelong community organizer, activist, and protester. Do you have any regrets with that choice? None. Just wish we could have done better. Do you have an achievement that stands out to you as your proudest moment? I think participating in building the organization itself is probably my proudest moment. I mean, when I look at various campaigns, I mean, you know, our campaign around Community Reinvestment uh, Act and getting people money to buy houses, probably 9 million people bought houses through the organization's agreements. But on our living wage campaigns, where we were able to raise wages and in state initiatives and city initiatives. When we won in Florida alone, uh, you know, more than a billion dollars was transferred to 2 million people. So um, in 2004 alone, on those elections, probably 10 million people got raises. So as the organization got bigger and bigger, um, towards the 40th, uh, 30th, third or fourth decade of the organization's life as more and more of the pieces came together, uh, we were able to win, you know, substantial victories for people that made a difference. Thank you for telling me and our podcast about yourself and your history. I think it's important for us to know, to understand what we're going to discuss next and what drove the beginning of KNON. That concludes part one of the beginning of KNON, an interview with Wade Rathke by Dave Chaos. In part two, you will hear about the role of the legendary Lorenzo Milan, founder of community radio stations across America, why Dallas's first community station, KCHU, went dark, how KNON rose from the ashes of KCHU, and much more. Support KNON now by making your pledge at knon.org. Your support will make more of our podcasts possible.